Good morning. I'll be reading from chapter 5 of Mark. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him, not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region as he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed in demon, demon, with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came out of the, ru of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him immediately. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, 
You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there then came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing when they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one in, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Taltha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the reading of Mark chapter 5. In England, whenever there's a reading... From, I grew up in the Anglican church. You finish it and everybody says, thanks be to God. Should we do that? That was the reading of Mark chapter 5. Yes. I do love a bit of participation. Um, this past week, or past, actually it wasn't this past weekend, it was the weekend before, um, I had a friend in town and um, she called Danielle and um, I asked her if I could mention her this morning, and she said yes. When I do mention people, because I often do, I always ask their permission, just FYI, so know that if we interact, I won't be up here chit-chatting about you if I haven't asked um, prior. So I was texting her this week, and I was like, hey, I have this passage, and I'd like to mention you if that's okay. My friend Danielle struggles with an eating disorder and has done for a number of years. And she has struggled for the last... um, couple years I'd say she has a hard time being in the church because what is consistently reflected back to her is that she should have more faith or that if she trusted a little more in Jesus then she probably wouldn't have this struggle with this eating disorder that she's struggled with for many many years and so we were talking about this um, while she was with me and then I got into this chapter and I was like This speaks really loudly of these conversations that I just had with Danielle. That if she just trusted more, that maybe this disorder would go away and that's begun to feel to her like pain. It adds to the pain that she already carries. 
And my mother, who is an American woman, so for those of you who didn't know, my mum is American. Whenever I talk about her or use her voice, often I sound like an American. So be warned. And um, she struggled with Crohn's disease um, most, of, most of my life, most of my childhood. And um, she, a lot of people would pray for her healing. Many, many people would pray for her healing. The woman came up to her one time and said that she had been praying for her and how was she feeling? And my mom said that she really hadn't been doing that great this week. And the woman just looked at her and she said, maybe it's something with your faith. And my mum, who is a feisty woman, she said, she was retelling this story to me, and she's like, you know what I wanted to say to her? She's like, I wanted to say, honey, you're the one praying, maybe there's something wrong with your faith. (laughs) And she's like, but I bit my tongue. (laughs) Right? And we read stories like this, story that we did today, and um, Jesus is telling these people that something about their faith that healed them says to that woman um, that comes who is bleeding like your faith has healed you, daughter, go. And then to Jairus, believe, believe, don't be afraid. And we can use those phrases and we can extrapolate the meaning and place them onto people and it is painful. And we cannot afford to do that. And so it's why we need to make sure when we look at this text, when we look at the Bible, that we're looking at it in in its whole, in all of it, with the whole story in mind. And that we don't, don't just take moments out of it and miss something in its context or miss the meaning or smear principles on people that we take from momentary phrases from this text, because that can do harm. And so in Mark chapter 5, as Sandy was reading it, and as we're listening to it, there are many textual cues in there that tie us to the broader um, biblical story. And so first, as we heard, Jesus goes on a boat and he goes to the land of the Gerizim which means that that wasn't Jewish land. We know subsequently that it wasn't Jewish land because they're keeping pigs. Jews wouldn't keep pigs because those animals were seen as unclean, impure animals, and they would transfer their impurity onto um, the people if they were around them. And then Jesus meets this man who comes out of the tombs, And culturally and religiously, graveyards were places of contamination. And so contact with the dead or graves would make you unclean, would make you impure. And then the text tells us that he has an unclean spirit. And then in verse 5, we're kind of led even more into his distress. And it says that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones, so he's also bleeding. This man is about as impure as it gets. And it's a distressing situation that he's in. And Jesus shows up in this mess. Then he gets on the boat and he crosses over to the other side, back to the land of the Jews, and there we have this religious leader. And he's a ruler of the synagogue. 
And he shows up and he is also distressed. He throws himself at Jesus' feet and he pleads with him to do something. Why? Because his 12-year-old daughter is about to die. And contact with a dead body, primary source of impurity or uncleanness in this culture. This religious leader is imploring this man to come with him into that space. And Jesus goes on his way, goes with him. And then here's a woman, also distressed. She's bleeding. And other than death, the main cause of impurity was bodily discharge. Do you see a theme? Because of her impurity, for 12 years, it's meant that she hasn't been able to go to the temple. Family and friends have not been permitted to touch her. They couldn't even touch furniture that she had been on. And she's had 12 years worth of bleeding. And if you read in verse 26, we feel the weight of it in this narrative. Verse 26 of Mark chapter 5. And who had suffered, this woman had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She has suffered tremendously. She's marginalized in society. She's now impoverished and she's in pain. And Jesus stops everything. He stops everything to be present to her. The disciples and the people around him are like, dude, what are you doing? There's like plenty of people pressing in. And that, Jesus stops everything in order to be present to her. And then what does he do? He walks into the home where they've been told that this little 12-year-old girl is lying dead. And this isn't just a story of kind of series of stories about healing. There is something very significant going on in this moment, and all of these textual cues should make us alive to it. We have to understand, like, the whole of the narrative of the text to be able to really feel the weight of this moment. There was one commentator called Ben Witherington, and he says this, that woman reached out to him, Jesus, because she thought that maybe just touching his garments would transfer enough holiness into her to make her well. And so the question is, why would he use the word holiness? Why would these people all need holiness? And so I'm going to ask you to watch a video, because I think this video will paint this picture more vividly and in a more succinct way than I could in six minutes, so let's watch it together. Around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. 
And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge, but there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water 
flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Pretty legit, right? Do you see what's happening here in Mark chapter 5? Look, we have to understand in light of all that was just been painted for us, that this moment is connected to all of these other moments that are revealed to us in the text. And holiness identifies and describes who God is, his creative, powerful, living presence that emanates out of him. And it flows from God to his creation, us and all other things, and we are transformed by his presence. And so this picture that we just read about, this narrative in Mark chapter 5, is revolutionary. Something new is happening. And Jesus is the one through whom that living presence of God transforms humans in the world. And it's happening like right in front of their eyes. And his creative and powerful living presence flows out to a man who's in a graveyard and to a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and feels hopeless. Flows out to crowds who get to see and disciples that walk with him into a space where there's a little girl's body of 12 that is lying dead. And these stories are supposed to wake us up to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And that truth is that nothing is going to stop or hinder the life-giving presence of Jesus in the world. Nothing. Not ethnicity. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're not a Jew. He's going to get off on a boat and go to another area where there's pigs. Nothing is going to separate us from this life-giving presence. So not ethnicity, not religious hierarchy, not marginalization, not even death. Nothing can separate us. And I think that is also called out to us in Romans chapter 8, that nothing, not life, nor death, nor rulers, nor powers, nor things present, nor things future will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ. That's the big picture of Mark chapter 5. That's what these narratives, these stories these vignettes are calling us in to hold onto and take hope in. That's the big picture here. It's the big picture that the text is always pointing towards. It's what Johnny talked about last week. In Jesus we have D-Day, but we're, we can anticipate this victory day that comes subsequently. But there's nothing that's going to hinder the life-transforming presence of God in our midst. But the big picture, the big picture never excludes the little picture. 
And these moments in Mark are also about deep human distress and the need for Jesus' presence in these moments. And faith seems to play a part in the remaking and the transforming and this um, movement of new life. And so he looks at this woman and he says, your faith has healed you. And he looks at Jairus and he says, believe and don't be afraid. But this um, narrative is not a formula. It's not an idea or a specific set of steps. But I think oftentimes that's what we want. Like we can believe the big picture doesn't always feel real in our own lives, so we want a formula or a set of steps so that we can understand what it looks like to get in on the presence of Jesus now. We want a formula, I think, for belief or a way to um, describe words like faith because we want to know that we're doing it right or that we're going to get it right. Or that we want a way to be able to tell people how to get it right or to be able to tell them that they're getting it wrong. But these stories defy that. And that's exactly the point. That there's no formula here. The point isn't to have a formula. The point here is who Jesus is and what he's doing. And the reality that we should be confronted with as we look at this text and we should get a hold of is that we as humans are in need of his presence. Which is that why I love that Shay picked that song earlier. Need his presence. We as humans are in need of his presence. And who is that? Well, this text shows us clearly who that is. The outsider from across the way needs his presence. The man in the graveyard, the church leader, the ostracized, marginalized woman, the 12-year-old child, all of them need his presence. All of them. And it's also all of us. All of us. Every single one of us in this room. We need his presence. We are all humans in need of his presence. And often we look to pastors religious leaders to communicate ideas on faith and what it means to understand texts like this, and that's fair. But I actually think the person who should be up here preaching today is my friend Danielle. And I told her when I asked her if I could talk about her eating disorder, I asked her if I could, um, or she asked me, well, what are you preaching on? And I said, Mark chapter 5. And she texted back and she said, that's one of my favorite. 
And so I was like, oh, why? I texted her back, why? Why is Mark chapter 5 one of your favorite? And this is what she said to me. I'm going to quote her directly. With the little girl, her dad was upset that she was dead. But Jesus told him not to worry, and he didn't just say that and leave it at that. He went with the man. Deep friendship is walking into what appears to be death for someone and not just giving good tidings and going on your way. Then Jesus went to the house where the little girl was, and in a sense, he took death by the hand. He took that which was appearing to be dead or the greatest loss, and he called her back to life with his physical words and touch his literal presence. I think my friend understands this story so well because she knows that it is what she needs. For Jesus to call her back to life with his presence. She doesn't need more faith. She needs his presence. And that's what the video communicated and part of it, that it's what it means to be the people of Jesus is to be able to show up and bring that to one another. His presence. And she said that directly in the second part of what she said to me. She said, which is what I think he asks us to do, to give our physical touch and words, to walk in the places where death is, to know that faith is more of an action than just a thing in your heart and head and to recognize that it's okay to be humans that need someone to come with us in order to be able to believe and trust fully. Danielle knows what faith and belief is. Even as people would reflect back to her that she doesn't. That faith is not a ledger about merits of things that we do or we don't do. It's not an ideology or some cognitive assent to Jesus. It is activated into a physical space by an embodied action, not a formula. And it comes from understanding our own humanness. That we need more than we have to give to ourselves. And so we risk. Not just intellectually, but in actions that demonstrate a submission to the presence of Jesus. That as humans, his presence is what we need. And that our faith would be an action and a demonstration of our submission to his presence. And so the question that we're left with at the end of this is, so what? So what do I do, Heather? Tell me what to do. How do I submit to that presence?
When you ask, what do I do? My answer to you is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know because it likely looks different for each one of us sitting in this room. Just the way it looked different in the narrative in this text. The way that you will embody faith today or this week or tomorrow will likely look different than the person that you're sitting next to. That the action that you show up with, it's an action of submission to the presence of Jesus will likely be different. Whether you're running around in a graveyard or whether you're a religious teacher or leader or whether you're a little girl that's really sick. Your submission to the presence of Jesus will look different. So what I want us to do is just spend a few minutes in quiet together. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions as we do that. And you can think about them, or you can pray, or you can jot something down if you have a journal or a piece of paper. We'll just take a couple of minutes in order to be able to attend to the Spirit of God. So I just want to ask you, who do you most identify with in this text? Maybe it's nobody. Maybe it's the crowds that don't really see Jesus. Maybe it's those who were afraid of Jesus and asked him to leave. Maybe you know your own desperation, like Jairus or the woman. Maybe you're standing far off, just observing. Who do you most identify with in this text? Where do you need to submit to the presence of Jesus? Where do you need to be awake to the presence of Jesus? or awakened to the presence of Jesus? What in you feels dead? What makes you impure? Where are you low? Where do you need to be awakened to the presence of Jesus? Now I'm just going to ask you to pray and maybe you don't pray or maybe you've never prayed or maybe you haven't prayed for a long time. But I'm just going to ask you to pray whether it's in a silent prayer in your heart or 
Whether you want to say it out loud, I just want you to pray that this week you would be awake to the presence of Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you, um, you turn the world upside down. And you turn the world upside down with your presence, and it, it's a presence that purifies and transforms and makes new. And sometimes, Jesus, it feels hard to expect you or anticipate you when the things around us feel broken or dead or uncertain. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would wake us. You would wake us up to the ways in which your presence would call us into trust, would call us into faith, would call us away from fear, would move us out of doubt, would bring us home and would bring us hope. And Lord, um, the reality is I don't know where that is for each of the people that sit in this room, and I don't know where it is for each of the people that they experience in their jobs or in their homes, and yet I'm convinced because of your word that you want us to be aware and awake to your presence. And so I ask that this week you would do that through the power of your Spirit, And that because of that, things that are new would happen in our midst, in our city, in our homes. And that we would stand like the people from this text, amazed. And so I ask for that this week. That we would be amazed. We just attest to you today that we're grateful Grateful for your presence in all places, in all spaces, and to all people. And so again, I pray that you would make us awake to it. In your name, Jesus. Amen.